Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, In Good Company. I'm Nicola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. In this podcast, I talk to the leaders of some of the largest companies we are invested in so that you can learn what we own and meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm talking to the CEO and chairman of Total Energy, Patrick Puyane. Total Energy is one of the largest multi-energy companies in the world. They have more than 100,000 employees and are active in more than 130 countries. We own over 3% of the company, translating into 38 billion kroner or more than 4 billion US dollars. So tune in. Unfortunately, we had some sound issues with this episode, but we still want to release it because it was just like seriously interesting. So, um, uh, well, first of all, um, Patrick, thank you uh, very much for taking the time. Now, you are the CEO of one of the largest energy companies in the world. Do you think we'll reach net zero in 2050? Yes, we have to be optimistic. The challenge is huge, to be honest, because to reach net zero, we need to change the whole uh, energy system of the planet. And it's a huge and it's a promethean task. But we have to be to believe in the capacity of uh, mankind to be creative, innovation. My answer is why not? But uh, we have to work out all together the whole uh, uh, and not only in the developed world, but in the, together with the emerging world, we want to succeed. And what's the what's your take on the current energy crisis that we are currently seeing? There are lots of things, you know. As the debate of the energy debate was dominated by the sustainable uh, sustainability, and now what we in crisis, we feel that you know energy policy has three pillars. One is, uh, I would say, you need a reliable energy, security of supply. You need an affordable energy affordability, and you need a sustainable energy, sustainability. And I think what reveals this crisis is that we should not forget the three pillars. And honestly, having spent 25 years in this industry, what struck me in 2022 is that the affordability part, even in our countries, in our developed countries, is dominating the debate. And that's for me the, the main challenge for this energy transition is to be able, are we able to, to really make this change, this huge investment changing the world energy system Keeping the affordability of energy, because of energy, energy is a, I would say, is a primary need, you know. And uh, when you see the reactions in European countries, when you see an increase in gasoline price or an increase in price, people don't accept that because it's just touching their primary uh, uh, needs and uh, their, their purchasing power. So you can imagine that if affordability is key in developed countries, their level of life is quite good. What is it in emerging countries? Well, for them. Access to energy is just a fundamental element of their aspiration to a better way of life, of any economic and social development. So that's for me. Uh, and so all this transition, and I know it's something contradictory because the scientists told us we absolutely need, if we want to survive, globally speaking, of the planet, we need to tackle this climate change. But this will have a cost. And the question is, how do we make this just transition that everybody is calling for? But we will manage it only if we keep in mind that anywhere in the world, the people want to have access to an affordable and reliable. Now, you are in a, in a lucky situation this year uh, in that you're having record uh, profits. Do you, um, do you understand why governments want to tax this windfall um, profitability? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, honestly, it's, uh, you know, we are in, it's a very paradox, a paradox for me uh, this year. We are the, the company has never been so strong good health, I would say terms of balance sheet, in terms of results, profits, but it's true that we do it, and somewhere it's perceived by society at that expense. You know, it's back to the affordability 
challenge that I was just mentioned. You know, so you have a sort of political, societal debate around companies like Total Energy, where people say, okay, look, uh, this company, they are making billions of profits, and at the same time, then they have a problem to see the billions of profits and the increase of the gathering price of the pump. So that makes, a, 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 it's a legitimate political debate. Does it go through taxation? Does it go through uh, what we've done on North side, which is more voluntary debates? Uh, we've gone to your customers, telling them we will come to you and we'll try to share the burden with you. I think that's, uh, uh, but I think I perfectly understand that the debate is coming on the, on the table today and uh, that we have to face it. And uh, we cannot, uh, again, we are in a field where energy is a primary need. And so we, um, I'm perfectly conscious of the, say, the, uh, our responsibility uh, towards our customers. Having said that, it's, it's not true to say that we do not deserve it. You know, we are today in this position because we have invested also and we have taken great, big risks. But it's clear that uh, I would say the magnitude of the volatility of the price today in Europe is too high. To be honest, mm. uh, 400 euros per megawatt hour for power is too expensive. And so that's part of what's why uh, we were not against that we, uh, when European EU uh, have decided to put some uh, uh, special taxation, I would say, on the energy field, in particular to capture part of the uh, inframargin infra for electricity, we, we will be tough. We will be we we'll have to pay these taxes, but I can understand the, the political logic of it. Well, as you know, as you know, we are great believers in in ownership, and we believe you are companies like yours are a very important part of the energy transition. So the uh, the other large investors, and there are many of them who actually divest from companies like yourselves. What is it that they are getting wrong? Again, I think it's uh, it's wrong because it's uh, back to what I I said today. If we a company like us, by the way, Total became Total Energy because we want to be one of the a uh, new leader of this transition. But if I want to invest like in 2023, $5 billion in renewables, which makes our company among the top five investment investors in this new renewable cup energies, I need to generate the cash. And the strong, strong asset that we have is our balance sheet. You know, we are generating a lot of cash and we generate it from hydrocarbons and we reinvest part of it in this renewable. So we are exactly making this transition so I think it's a, a company like us is able for investors at the same time to deliver some good dividends. You know, we are a cash machine, so we are attractive for investors, but we are also preparing the future dividend by investing in some low-carbon energies. When we talk to your competitors, they talk about uh, you as being a very innovative company with you know very technologically advanced solutions and so on. Now, um, how have you developed that mindset in the group? I think, you know... <laughs> Total Energies is a, it became a, a major oil and gas company with no hydrocarbons in France, almost nothing. So we have been able, it's almost, we are almost 100 years old, it will be in 2024, we have been obliged to be developed abroad. Which, which is quite extraordinary, right? Because you are the only large energy company with no natural exactly, resources. Exactly. And so we have developed a company abroad in the Middle East, in Africa, but by bringing to uh, us countries technology project management, capacities, innovation. I strongly believe that, uh, you know, what makes uh, the future, for me, the future of a, a major company like us is innovation, industry. So innovating is key. And uh, I'm always uh, spending a lot of time every year, for example, with my executive committee, we spend three, four days to do what we, do, we call a learning expedition. 
Lastly, lastly, we went to Israel during four days. A group of 10 executives with us. Why? Because I want to show to my colleagues, and it's a question of leading by example, by spending four days of my time, myself, just to listen to innovators, you know, and we went to, uh, of course, to California, we went to China, we went to India. It's important in order to capture some new ideas and then to integrate them. So I think the spirit of innovation is key. It's part, I would say, of, our, again, we have built this company because we, we, we have been obliged to do it, having not benefited ourselves from, I think, I would say, a uh, an, easy, uh, an easy oil resource or gas resource to capture. The um, International um, Energy Agency said last year that uh, no new oil or gas field developments in new areas were needed. What is your view on their comments? Uh, and at the same time, the same agency is explaining us every week or in month that we need to invest more. Today. So I think there is a contradiction there. And I think yeah, we spend a lot of time, let's be clear. We agree with the scenario, the IA scenario, to the end point in 2050. We have exactly the same image how much we produce, not much than 25 million barrels of oil per day by 2015, right? Yeah, yeah. The question is the trajectory. Should we begin to decline from today or can we wait? If we decline from today, again, it's back to the previous debate, then the price of energy will go higher and higher and higher. It will not be a just transition. So they, I think for me, uh, the scenario has been uh, extreme, but at the same time, again, the IEA themselves, uh, months after months in 21 and 22, they asked to produce more. So less more investments, but we should stop investing in green fields. It does not work. Yeah. People, there is, uh, so this is something for me which is just, uh, that's why we disagree with the scenario. I know the scenario become like a Bible, uh, which is a problem. You know, when we speak today about climate change, it's becoming like a, a religion. You know, and you have the Bible, which is the IA scenario. I think we should, honestly, it's a very serious matter. We cannot just uh, manage this transition by thinking that it could be done overnight with simple recipes. It's not true. What is your view on nuclear? Nuclear, I think, uh, for me, it's a, uh, it's an, I would say, of course, it's a decarbonized energy, so it should be part of the mix for sure. But there was Fukushima, you know, and Fukushima, uh, we were looking to nuclear until Fukushima. Fukushima raised for us a question, question mark about the, the risk, and I have a, a question mark for me. Is the nuclear risk compatible with the balance sheet of a listed company, a public company? I, I'm not fully convinced of it. So I know that there are some. Yeah, what do you think? What do you think about the fusion breakthrough? I want to be sure that it's not just uh, startups who want to make money, but we are really uh, investing for the long term. You know, because it's, there is a lot of it's fashionable today. There are some new. We have reached some new steps. We are far from being able to put that on an industrial scale. If you change um, tack a bit uh, and go back to twenty um, fourth of February last year, suddenly one of the countries where you had big investments um, invaded Ukraine. And how how did you personally cope and with that situation? That's tough because it's true that our companies have spent quite a lot of time building a quite a good position, strong position in Russia. And we are believing that uh, economic bridges was a way to to go to, to maintain peace. We are wrong. We are part of this uh, dynamic. Uh, we, are, we are big investors, in particular in the energy business in Russia, in energy. So it was, of course, for us something, uh, I would say, tough, but at the same time, uh, Russia, and you know, we have a policy in the, in the company. We don't want one country to represent more than 10% of our capital employees. We were just at 10%. And I was asking myself the question before the war 
okay, be, be, be careful. You are at the limit of what can be acceptable. And I think I knew that we could survive to that. So it was more of a matter then, and it was a complex discussion with the board and uh, everybody, because there was a lot of emotions, of course, on one side. And so emotion being clearly, uh, this drama is just unacceptable. And at the same time, we are responsible of a company with some assets. And so the question was, and we have also the mission, by the way, to continue to deliver to Europe uh, uh, some supply, the energy supply. And so we engage into discussion with European French governments and other governments to see what we should, should we do. So it was quite intense. We decided that we'll find a, a way to withdraw regularly, I mean, step by step, in the right order. But continuing, uh, in fact, today, uh, nine months after, I would say, uh, or ten months after, we are left only by one asset fundamentally, which is the asset which contributes to European security of supply, which is Yamaha LNG. All the other assets have been step after step divested. You, um, it took um, it took you some time to uh, to exit Russia. Did um, did Macron have to no, call no, you? No, no, contrary, Macron did not have to call me. You know, I'm, I was discussing right after 20 February 24 with him, <laughs> and we were very closely discussing. He didn't ask to ask me. He even asked me to continue to make my job to supply the energy to Europe. You know, Europe did not sanction Russian gas uh, since the beginning. But we were, Total Energy, we decided to stop buying, purchasing any oil, Russian oil, in end of March 2021. We declared it before the, the sanctions were taken by December 5th. On the gas, they didn't decide it. And they even told me, and I would say... Uh, Chancellor Schultz the same. Let's continue to deliver to bring to Europe the gas that we need. Because without uh, this energy today, it would not be so easy. So again, and my position is very clear. I told them, if you ask me what to do, if you decide to stop Russian gas, bringing Russian gas, we'll stop immediately. No problem. It's not a matter of total energy assets. I will do exactly what you decide. But this is where policymakers need to take their position and we need to also on our side, then to, to answer. Because of the, um, the big investment you had in Russia, you, you met with uh, Putin many times, I think. Now, how, how, was, how was he to deal with? Uh, I mean, I never negotiated to him. I, I met him from time to time, but I don't negotiate with Putin. I was not doing that. No, but I think it was somebody who was uh, first in knew the, he knew the topic. You know, he, was, uh, he, knew, he knew about it. I can tell you the last discussion I had, I was even impressed by the capacity of knowledge of the European markets. I should have been more uh, maybe worried about it. So he knew perfectly what we were speaking about. Uh, he had a very, uh, I would say, nationalistic approach. Uh, I think more convinced by state-owned companies than by private players, to be honest, uh, even if he was willing to attract some foreign investments up to a certain point. Uh, but again, uh, I would say uh, I can all what I was thinking, but by that time, uh, what is happening today, you can forget. You see who he is today. In fact, uh, so, I mean, I was probably wrong like others, but uh, in fact, he was clearly uh, easily dominated by uh, the idea that he must uh, install, uh, I would say, the, uh, uh, the Russia power, I would say, or the old Russia power, uh, which is, of course, going beyond what uh, our democratic values can accept. So, I mean, I'm uh, again, I think we were part of the idea. Uh, after 1991, that uh, we could uh, anchor Russia to Europe and to the Western world by bringing, by building economic bridges, economic investments, will be part of the peace journey. Obviously, it was not his agenda. This is what we understand today. So, 
Uh, the fact that he um, knew the European gas infrastructure so well, why did that make you suspicious? Well, because I think that honestly, uh, I was impressed that he understood very well all the dynamic of the European markets and that uh, the influence that could have the Russian gas on the, on the on the European supply. You know, and I think he was very aware about the dependency of Europe on the Russian gas. And I think it probably has um, more, I think, probably understanding, but some of the Western European leaders who have discovered it with the war. You know, it was a part, I think, of the discovery of 2022 for many leaders, but they did not realize that, uh, in fact, without Russian gas, even look, we, are, we had a lack of infrastructure, of energy infrastructure. We had a lack of the gas capacity without Russian gas. So today, we are in Western Europe, in Germany, but everywhere we are trying to build quickly some gas capacities in order to substitute uh, to the Russian gas. So that's part that means that, in fact, or at the, in terms of security of supply, uh, Europe did not really uh, make the stress test what happens if Russian gas is no more available. And so today, in, in a hurry, but it will take us two, three years, we are building the infrastructure we need in order to substitute the Russian gas by energy. Of course, energy is more expensive than the Russian gas. It's probably why. We are missing it. So it's, I think mm. he had this understanding about the, uh, uh, maybe a bit more understanding of his uh, knowledge about it. And he was, I think he has used it properly. Mm -hmm. Now, you deal um, increasingly with the different state leaders. So what do you think is the most important diplomatic skill you need to have in that situation? Well, you know, I think uh, whatever, maybe it's my own character, I think uh, it's, you have to speak up, you have to say the truth to the people. When you met them, what they expect from you is from time to time to tell them what they what what they what you think is good for them and what you what you can bring them and what is not good for them. You know, so sometimes you you, you make uh, and I think it's part of my job, by the way, which is the interesting part, is to try to, to to gain trust from some leaders in front of us. So I have the chance to have access to some of them because for us, our company is just uh, in fact we are developing, producing. Uh, their natural resource in a large way, so we are an important stakeholder. But when I when we, I met them, I think what they expect from me is more to, to face the reality and to tell them what works well and what would not work well, and how we put together do, do better for their country. I think. So uh, honesty and I would say uh, speaking up is our good qualities in terms of diplomacy. You are known uh, for having a strong personality, and uh, you have to take this in the best possible sense, but. Uh, does that make it difficult for people to work with you and to disagree with you? Oh, you know, I will tell you, that's true for any leader. When you become number one in an organization, your life is changing. Because you think you are normal, but the people who are in front of you think you are not normal exactly. You are not the same, you know. And that takes time to understand that you are not so normal, you know. And that when they enter into my office, uh, when I was entering into this office, by the way, when with my predecessor, myself, I was more prudent, you know. And I say, okay, can I say that or not, you know. And so I, you must encourage people to say you. I mean, and it's true. That so are you? Are you? So are you normal? I am. I think I am, but I'm not in their eyes. You know. Uh, so this is more important. You know. And they think. <laughs> what does it do? What does it do with your self perception uh, when your colleagues don't think you are normal? No, I think it's a matter of uh, again trying to find to, to maintain the trust between us. But it's important, you know. Uh, I think in, in any organization like that, you have a sort of isolation, number one. The, the number one is very different. I discovered that when I became number one. Okay? Honestly, it's a fundamental differential. Because suddenly, everybody is looking to you. 
as if you have all the answers to everything, which you don't have, obviously. But so it's it's a very different, and in fact, it, it requires from you uh, a permanent attention to the people. You know, they want, everybody wants, I'm spending my days in meetings, they want me to listen to each of them is important, you know. So you need to dedicate the time. They are expecting from me some answers, which sometimes I have, sometimes I don't have, you know. And so and, and so it's part of finding the way, and I think what I'm trying to do is to demonstrate to them that collective intelligence is more important by my own person, personal intelligence. Collective intelligence, the dialogue, speaking together. Uh, I like business reviews. I don't like business reviews. I saw meetings in the company where we exchange views, you know. This is a part of the business where I'm happy. When it's coming to executive committee where I have to take the decision at the end, it's less fun, you know, because then you are there to say yes or no. So I think it's part of being able to contribute to building the collectively and uh, uh, the, the position, the decision is something that we need to encourage people. So uh, speaking up again, encourage them to is, is important. So you're very clearly, uh, you know, a very accomplished professional. Uh, you say you um, you hated amateurs. Does that give you uh, any challenges in your private life? <laughs> It's a good question. So you should ask my, my children they are, uh, <laughs> and my wife. I think sometimes to time they, they think that I'm too... Uh, <laughs> That's kind of I, I make a difference, to be honest. That I'm, uh, uh, I, I, have, uh, since I, I have my private life with my family, uh, which I'm protected, and I have my professional life. And... Uh, I, I think, and by the way, it's not so easy sometimes that I know in my, when I became CEO, suddenly I became in France the CEO of a very large company. So I became my, for my children, it was not an easy, an easy situation because suddenly their father was uh, somebody, they see, their, they see the face of the, the father at the front page of the, of the monde, you know, it was a change of life. Uh, so you have also to protect that part. And I think it's important to keep uh, a secret garden. I would say. When you are CEO of a company, you have your, You have the company business, you have a public uh, face, and uh, that's what I'm facing. But at the same time, you have your own secret garden, keeping a certain stability. I would say, uh, you know, I like when I'm after Fridays to spend some time to time my weekends. Some of them are in the Middle East, but when I can have some time uh, where I'm more quiet at home, it's also very important. It's your own psychological stability. By the way, I'm also How do you deal with uh, personal setbacks? Ah, that's a good question. I think you have to, to face reality again. To, to be, I think it's very important to recognize that. I mean, uh, when you have some, and not to believe that, okay, you know, each mistake, because I learned something from my predecessor. He told me, okay, you know, you will have, you will make some mistake. You will have some setback. But you need to be enough lucid in order to, to avoid to do them again. You cannot do it twice. So you will make mistakes and you have to accept it. Uh, don't try to make too, try to not to make too many, but if you take once, be able to recognize it and not to repeat it. And I think I'm trying fundamentally to to, accept, to, to apply to my service. Uh, then, uh, when you have setbacks, you need to be able to discuss with somebody else, you know, to have some, to, some, not to keep them for yourself. Because if you keep for yourself the pressure, uh, you think that you have too much pressure. So it's, it's very important to have some counterpart which might be in the company, which might be outside of the company. In fact, people with whom you can express, I would say, your dissatisfaction or your... And that's important in order to manage with, uh, your pressure. Who do, you, who do you discuss with? I have uh, some two or three persons with whom I will not, which are... With people, not all of them, but which are... Two of them are outside of the company with whom I discuss. And I, I regularly have a, 
a monthly meeting, one of them, on which I'm sharing not only the success, but the more the difficulties that I'm facing in order for him outside of the company to react to what I'm doing. And just to begin, being an outsider helped me a lot because it gave me some, I would say, uh, some distance with what I'm facing and trying to oblige me to ask questions. And that is very important not to keep everything for you. Very interesting. Now, we have a lot of um, students and young people listening to these podcasts uh, who would love to be as successful as you've been. What, what would you advise them to do? Work hard. <laughs> work, work hard. Of course, you have to work on something where you have a pleasure. Pleasure is very important. You know, when you do something, it's important to do it with pleasure. Because if you have some pleasure to work in what you do, then you will work harder uh, and you will be successful. So I think it's important. I will also advise them to be careful to... Uh, with your boss. Now, I try to convince my children not to choose because they want to do one specific area of work, but what is important in your own life of others. In fact, you have some examples. You know, your boss will, be, will give you some leading by example is important, but yourself, you are step by step learning from who you work with. And so it's very important to, and I think I've been working my life, my professional life, to the succession of uh, uh, on both, both which were helping me to go, in fact, you know, and to and to become what I became, because you you learn from them, and you take the good, take some of the bad, but you take the good, so it's important. So I try to so be careful also to important to, to, to choose mm. also who you work. Now you are also a big foreign actor in Norway. What do you think about the Norwegian continental shelf? It's, uh, it's <laughs> in Europe. It's fundamental. There is a huge resource base. It's a huge resource base. I think I'm. Uh, and you know we have kept all our assets. I'm a strong guy. I am a strong believer of keeping my assets in Norway. Uh, I want. I didn't uh, make any uh, spin-off or any. Uh, I think it's important. We have a, a strong position with Equinor, by the way, which we uh, would mind. I think uh, Norwegian confidential shelf is not an easy place for foreign companies. You know, there is a strong nationalism in Norway, and, uh, but we good uh, service industry as well. So it's a position that we have developed uh, from. Since the 70s, I would say, which we continue to build. We are, uh, we are happy to, to, to join the UN Fair Group. There are six of discoveries to be done. So it's not, uh, I think it's, uh, it's one of the most prolific areas. Uh, and uh, where, again, of course, fiscal terms in Norway are, are, are tough. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a long history. Yeah. You have visited um, here many times. What is your best personal experience? In Norway? I think it's, uh, I, would, I would say, my best personal experience in Norway. I didn't think of that question. Oh, okay, I answer to that. No, I, I think uh, people in Norway, I think for me, are, are frank people. They are in a good discussion. And I'm, uh, last time I went to your, uh, to, to Stavanger, I think it's a uh, direct discussion, and I, I like it. I, mean, uh, I like that. Having then personal experience is to go to Arctic, uh, no, Arctic Circle, you know, to go north, you know, to go to Tromso and beyond, because I love to see Boreal uh, Night. I don't know before that in English, but Boreal uh, Night. So I think Boreal Night is nice. So this is my own, my best personal experience. You know, I'm just coming back from the Antarctic continent. I spent my 10 days of holidays in Christmas to, for Christmas to go to Ushuaia and then to Antarctic with the cruise. Well, I like to this type of uh, landscapes with plenty of ice. It's good because it's uh, you can uh, you can relax and think. There is nothing except some uh, you know penguins and other and whales. It's another way to think. And I think when you are CEO, it's also good from time to time to to exit from your world, which is going very fast, 
where you have to come and take decisions. And uh, I like this type of landscapes, uh, which you can find in Norway, where we have uh, uh, snow and ice, and uh, this is a wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I think this is a really lovely and peaceful place to end. Um, a very big thanks for taking the time. It's been tremendous having you on, and uh, all the best with the energy transition going forward. Thank you very much for your uh, for the invitation.